Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Winnie from Birmingham, and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, what was the last thing that really cheered you up or brought bonus joy into your world? Okay, here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello everybody and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast for myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked and we are talking everything from... Everything from Winnie from Birmingham's question, what was the last thing that really cheered you up or brought joy into your world? Wow, thank you Winnie. What a question. Dane. How you feeling? I'm feeling I'm feeling uh, bereft. Like you don't want to you, know, you don't want to say it. examples, yeah, bereft of examples for slivers <laughs> of uh, optimism. But no, I'd say um, what has shit me up has been the recent uh, altruistic work of uh, Premier League footballer Marcus Rashford, who you know oh, a lot of time in a in a sea of uh, you know pomposity and pageantry that surrounds his industry. He uh, remembered where he came from and actually used his platform effectively to effect change, and which doesn't always received well by uh, the powers that be. But I just think that would be patronising somebody of that age and in the uh, arenas that he's in, still being able to use his platform effectively uh, make, fills me with uh, pride and hope. So yeah, happy, yeah. That's a good one. Mine wasn't quite as meaningful. Mine was just the uh, the Dustin Hoffman film Marathon Man, which I watched last night. Uh, great film. Check it out if you haven't seen great it. Great film. Um, You'll know Dustin the Hoffman from the film Outbreak. Yeah, yeah very old. Or, or, or the documentary, is it? Yeah, now, the documentary but, um, Outbreak. But suffice to say, we ask and answer all the questions. All the questions, no question is too, is too small, insignificant or stupid. Uh, we invite all the questions. And if you like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode. Or you can subscribe to us on ACAST, the world's largest podcast network, to hear all the questions from our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is a seminal radio presenter and broadcaster. He's one of the presenters on the LBC talk radio station. His book entitled How to Be Right in a World Gone Wrong reached fifth position in the Sunday Times top 10 bestsellers list. His second book, How to Not Be Wrong, The Art of Changing Your Mind, is released on the 22nd of October 2020. Get it? It might be a blueprint to how to survive the impending collapse of our society. Ladies and gentlemen, and those of the non-binary community as well. So we are pumped to welcome to the show a man whose ethos fits the question everything mantra. Please welcome James O'Brien. Hello, and thank you for having me. Oh, no, our absolute pleasure. Um, well, you know, welcome. How have you been? I feel like we probably have a very similar ideological and uh, sociological disposition around about now, James. Yes, I, and it, I mean, you, you, you've got to keep your chin up, haven't you? It's an astonishing uh, catalogue of confusion, to be kind, chaos or, or, or catastrophe, if you were feeling less kind. And, and surely before we... Uh, said hello to each other. Uh, Boris Johnson's made his latest contribution to Brexit, which has kind of slipped into the background a bit, like Banquo's ghost, and then 
of course, um, it, it isn't going to go away. So the very real prospect now of hitting the end of this year with coronavirus rampaging out of control once again, and I think the increased chances of a no-deal Brexit um, uh, happening at exactly the same time. So thank God for Marcus Rashford, uh, uh, frankly, because uh, <laughs> these little glimmer, I genuinely mean it, these little reminders yeah. of what decency looks like and actually what altruism looks like. We're actually thinking, there's nothing in this for me. I'm going to act entirely for the benefit of somebody else is is very much uh, a tonic for these times. Absolutely. And I feel like, uh, you know, I think a Macbeth reference was more than adequate because, you know, I feel like a little water washes us off this deed has been the narrative for the last eight yeah. months. And, uh, yeah, it's been as vague yeah. as that. And there's been, there have been a lot of deeds which have left a lot of blood and a lot of hands. And, um, I, I mean, yeah, I was just wondering how you've been able to get to the last couple of months without screaming with a megaphone. I well, two, so. two ways, though. The first is that I've promised live on air to give £10 to charity every time I say those words. Obviously, I'd get into trouble if I used the <laughs> F word anyway, but the other four words, yeah, I, I've actually pledged to give £10 to charity, so I, I need to buy a new thesaurus. I need to find... Look. Well, And also, of course, the people who most need to hear that, or the people most perhaps um, persuaded that I was horribly wrong about everything since June 2016, probably still aren't ready to acknowledge it, even as the, even as the waters lap against the shores. The, the, the reality hasn't quite landed in the way that it will have done by this time next year. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, uh, with this, the rise in, I guess, rhetoric over those last four years, um, how I put it was, uh, you're really dealing with a contingent of people now who would rather burn down their house than tidy their That's room. That's beautifully put. I, I mean, I, we could play top trumps with analogies because the one I've liked for years is increasingly uh, relevant, I think. And I, I, I found this one popping into my mind the very first time I encountered Nigel Farage in a television studio. And I realized that he would rather be on a sinking ship saluting a bridge with a, an English admiral on it <laughs> than he would be uh, on, you know, the, 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 the queen of the fleet, the finest vessel ever to sail the seven seas. But if it happened to have, you know, a few people of different nationalities or background on the bridge, then he wouldn't want to be on that. He'd want to be on the sinking one saluting the English admiral. And here we are on the burning deck. Here we are, indeed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Before we go to some questions, uh, I've got to answer or ask you Winnie's question mm. that we had at the start. It's, tell us something that brought you a bit of joy, James, before we uh, dive into some other stuff. I, I, I mean, to, not to be too selfish about it but I, I've, I've loved the amount of time I've been able to spend with my family during lockdown so I mean over the course of mm. the year that's been a very thick silver lining to, to the obviously horrible clouds and, and my daughters now are of an age where they're on the on the cusp of adulthood and I, I find almost every day just watching their genuine very different and very distinct personalities emerge in, in a way that because um, I, 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 I went away to boarding school at quite a young age. I, I didn't have that as a child, that absolute sense of unit at home, that sense of uh, togetherness at home. So I, I derive an enormous amount of comfort for that. And doubly, to go back to Dane's question, the way you can avoid smashing your head against a brick wall every 10 minutes is by having a home where when you close the door, despite the best efforts of Twitter, when you close the door, you can leave, <laughs> you can leave all the crap outside and, and focus on what you know, ultimately matters most. Yeah, beautifully yeah. put. I think, I think that's been the biggest part of the uh, the revelation of the pandemic. And uh, 
you know, and, and leads me, I may want to adjust that answer somewhat in terms of Winnie, because I suppose it's trying to be optimistic about it, is that I personally feel, and you might be able to verify this as well, James, is that, you know, given your background and having more humble and working class beginnings and going to a boarding school, you've probably saw the quantum of, you know, the systems that we're seeing now play out today, whether it's like, you know, the functions of how nepotism and elitism, class stratification works, and, it, and a lot of it not being based on the meritocracy that you thought it would be and how you'd afforded your way there. Do you look back, do you look back now and be like, I saw the stuff that didn't make any sense then and the systems and, you know, these aesthetics of the ruling class that didn't make sense then. It's not a surprise now that left to their devices and being able to maintain their position of power, we are in this clusterfuck of uh, incompetence. No, now. I wish, I wish I had, but I didn't, um, until I stepped out of it, I couldn't see it clearly. It's the, it's the strangest thing. And, and I mean, my, my parents grew up in very, or my dad in particular, um, much less privileged circumstances than I did. But I was, I was privileged and middle class from the get-go. I went, I, you know, I went, away to, I went to private school at three and a half. I went to the local convent in Kidderminster. And, and, and you don't know how the rest of the world works. I think this is a crucial part of the disconnect between the ruling class as the modern ruling class, which isn't aristocratic, but its privilege is baked in in very different ways, most obviously from the kind of education and schooling that I had. But until you get to know people outside of that milieu, you don't realise how extraordinary and, of course, um, institutionally unfair it is, because it's all you've ever known. It's, it, it is, you know, it is literally all you've ever known. And, and an awful lot of people, particularly when I look at, you know, the, the upper echelons of the Conservative Party, they, they, they know no better. So possibly I'm almost doing the opposite of what you suggest. And I'm not suggesting I feel sympathy for these people, but if you don't realise that the way, the only way you've ever known is institutionally unfair. White privilege is a good example of this. You literally don't know that it's wrong or unfair or even real because you've never... Part of the privilege. Yes, exactly. It's something I've probably had to learn to articulate to people for a long time is that a big part of privilege is obliviousness. Absolutely. There are, there are even systems of obscurity uh, and, yeah. and, you know, systems that keep these issues obtuse from you. So you do remain within these, like, you know, legislative or executive positions where you never actually have to have boots on the ground. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, you see this, you know, when you see people that are aspiring demagogues like a Tommy Robinson or a Katie Hopkins, they'll never be in, in the marches themselves. You know, they'll, they'll, nev they'll never be at a food bank serving food to this uh, disenfranchised work, work, white working class they claim they're trying to uplift. I'll give you a good example. At my school, if you announced an ambition to be prime minister, people would take you seriously. And, and, and there would be a few of us in every, every you know, the, the, the people that ran the debating society or the people that were particularly politicised at uh, 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 my kind of school or indeed at Boris Johnson and David Cameron's kind of school, much more obviously, because I don't think we've ever had a prime minister come out of my school. But it was a perfectly reasonable upper middle class, public school educated 15 year old saying, well, when I grow up, I want to be prime minister. There was one lad at my school who was a brilliant public speaker, probably, I mean, probably a bit too posh to cut through. Um, then, although it's changed again now, it's sort of Jacob Rees-Mogg style accent. I remember yes. asking him once why, why he didn't want to go into politics. And I swear to you, he was 17 years old. He was in the lower sixth. I was still in short trousers. I kind of looked up to him. And, and he said, well, I've given it some thought, O'Brien. And um, I think being prime minister would be beneath me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, now before you said that i'd have been like that's insane but yeah. the last I, i'd say the last 20 years yeah. I, I could definitely see that and, and, and I could definitely the thing i find most fascinating about both that 
because I make no apology for it. My dad, it meant the world to him to give me what he didn't have. And, and you know, until everybody else is in the same boat, I, I can't fault his logic or his service. But that and newspapers, to, to see from the outside what they do, they've probably been the defining experiences of my life for the last 20 years, is, is realizing that what I thought was normal was a horribly skewed system um, in the context of, of, of the social order and opportunity and social mobility. And, and what I thought was commonplace was um, uh, actually extraordinary. And with newspapers thinking naively that they were a force for good and that the freedom of the press was a meaningful concept and a meaningful phrase, having by career accident ended up not pursuing my childhood dream of being a newspaper editor and, and instead ending up doing something I enjoy a lot more, I, can, I think I can see the the rottenness at the, at the core of, of most of the print media in a way that I would furiously deny if I was still working in it. Of course. Well, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, it, it's, such a, it's such a huge issue. And obviously, uh, today's show, listeners, is going to be all centred around just one question. Isn't that right, Dane? We're going to focus it in a, in, a, in a kind of different way today. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I want to say again, James, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, I feel like this is a real apex and... So career milestone. Um, it's 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 a it's a, it's a it's a bit of discourse I wanted to have for a long time. Um, my dad listens to the show all the time. Unlike myself, he's able to restrain himself emotionally um, and hear both sides without punching the steering wheel. Um, I'm a lot more impassioned by it um, now. I, some people know you were coming on the show, and um, what came up as maybe a suggested question were people kind of alluding to, I suppose, having this uh, smugness of virtuosity, where it's like. The saying is you can't be wrong and strong, but it's like you shouldn't just delight in being right. Now, personally, I disagree because if you are saying something with a factual basis, then I don't need to back down, nor do I have to uh, pander to people's feelings because we're not having discussion to affect your ego. This is about the discussion of facts. That's how arguments are supposed to work typically. Um, so I, I didn't want to kind of, I didn't want to be bored on that being like, do you find sometimes you're too arrogant when you're being right? Because I don't think there's a real arrogance if you're being correct. And especially if your narrative is for, you know, on a larger scale or a larger social scale in everyone's self-interest. Mm. So, um, and so with, with kind of James's new book in mind, today's, ep- today's episode is all about why is it so hard to change your mind? Uh, James, I imagine you've, <laughs> you've dived about as deep into that question as, as as might be possible in the last few months of writing that book, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I'm sure I could have dived deeper. I, I think I'll answer the other question as well, actually, because the, the, it, it often turns out that people who think that I have kind of been a little condescending or a little smug or, or a little arrogant, and I'm sure I have on occasions, but it often turns out that they know me mostly through the clips that have gone viral, which are, which are very much moments in a three-hour period that, that stand out, which is why they get clipped up and, and sent viral. And some poor soul whose trousers fall down while he's talking about, you know, three pin plugs being outlawed by Brussels or wanting his fish and chips. I don't know how you can not look a little this is, yeah, exactly. superior, but if, you, if your dad was yeah. here and, and put someone who listens to the whole three hours regularly, they generally don't recognize that characterization. And I get it from the other side as well. I, I get it. People telling me constantly that I spent years maligning and smearing the last leader of the Labour Party, whereas, you know, there's a reason why 
Rupert Murdoch's newspapers have written horrible things about me. And it's, it's not because I'm a right-wing enemy of the Labour Party. So the clips often paint a very different picture from, from the programme and certainly a very different picture from who I, I feel I am. But, but yeah, the, the, I mean, changing your mind, it just partly because of that, actually, guys, because I felt the last book was, I was proud of it, but it was an examination of how good, decent, honest people ended up believing things that were catastrophically and demonstrably untrue. So whether it was something like Winterval, this old myth that the uh, that the do-gooding council 20 years ago had tried to abolish Christmas, or, or whether it was the fear that people feel for, for, for Muslims, or whether it was um, opposition to the sugar tax or, 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 or high stakes gambling machines. Confrontation of human rights was always a good one. I found in uh, right-wing publications whereby, like, this guy's on yeah. the roof and he can get free chicken because of his human rights. So there's been this, yeah. agen- uh, I mean, I'll tell on average, I mean, it's been 20 years plus, which on average is around a generation. So you've had a generation-long yeah. narrative which has, yeah, allowed people to move not just uh, right or centre, but no. really a lot further and, and yeah. really outside of the bipartisan political spectrum yes. generally into really just I guess aspiring capitalists or, 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 or individualists even, even into the darkness actually I, I would say so so what I tried what I did in the last book was explain how this had happened and provide the evidence you know trade union membership and and show what the newspapers had done and what the public narrative had been and and demonstrate why it was wrong to think you know, nine or ten very popular misconceptions, and and it worked. You know, it 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 it, it it's it's a decent book. But when I came to write the second one, which was predicated on the success of the first one, so you're in a very different position where where you know the first one's done really well. So the second one, a you get paid up front, regardless of whether anyone buys it or not. It is sweet. That is that is that's a lovely position to be in. And b you you you're kind of given as much freedom as you require to write it. And I just found myself thinking, well, it's all very well writing about what other people have got wrong and explaining to them why they're wrong. But I can't write how to be writer now or, or, or I told you so, you know, £10 in the, in the charity pot. So, so, so why don't I look at all the things I have been and possibly still am wrong about and try to work out how I ended up in those positions. And when I say possibly still am wrong about, I mean those those things that are more emotional than intellectual, when you have a, a, an instinctive reaction to something that your stomach usually or your heart leads, and yet there's a voice in your head saying, no, man, that's not right. You, you shouldn't feel that way about vegetarians, for example, to pick a I was going to say, have you got a good example? Is vegetarianism yeah. quite a good yeah, example? It's a relatively innocuous example. I mean, I've got much bigger ones in there. I mean, I used to sit on daytime television uh, supporting corporal punishment for reasons that I dig into very deeply in the book. But vegetarianism, it, it, as I worked my way into it, I, I realised it is a sort of form of, for me, I know it's morally almost impossible to justify eating flesh, but I love eating meat. And so my my animosity towards vegetarians was, a, was born of a kind of denial of my own hypocrisy. So rather than, I used to say stuff like, well, when we got married, we had to provide a vegetarian option for all our vegetarian guests. But when they got married, I didn't see any meat at the reception. How can that, how can that be right? I mean, it worked. It worked where whataboutism originated from, yeah. Was there never a meat option in a veggie restaurant? Yes, exactly, which is, I mean, ridiculous, but powerful. Because that, that, I understand, because that's, that's when you start uh, 
moving towards the, well, why is there not a straight pie parade? Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. When is men International Men's Day, yeah, please? Exactly, yeah. Why is there not a White History Month? I hadn't spotted that. That should have been in that chapter. I should have made that. I mean, I make other points on that thing, but that's a brilliant observation. It's exactly like that. And and what it is, 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 is an attempt to sort of bury what your conscience is telling you because nobody likes to feel wrong. And so, you know, shouting from the rooftops in a way about how right you are and how wrong they are, that's what it's really about, bloody vegetarians. I bet you wear leather shoes. Don't, what does that prove? Nothing. Cool. You try buying vegan school shoes, which I've had to do in the last few years. It's almost impossible, but it doesn't it doesn't diminish or dilute my daughter's vegetarianism that we find it very, very hard to buy her non-leather stuff because it just doesn't exist. Uh, so that was a good James, example. I tell you, James, you know, like my wife is a uh, a, as Dane, Dane knows, is a, is a sustainable shopping expert. Wow. Uh, she runs a website called Buy Me Once that is designed to make you not buy shit, buy yeah. things that last. And every time she tells someone, there's about 50% of the world, you can see their brain going, I wonder what I can prove that you're not 100% sustainable with. Yes, yes. Why? Because because it's easier than admitting it's, that we uh, could actually do a little bit more. easier than trying to... Uh, uh, Ascend a throne, I, I guess. I think as much. Yeah, but but, but also it, it's it's a salve to your own conscience, you see. Because if if I can portray you as somehow fraudulent or somehow discredit you by saying, "Well, of course, yeah," I mean, you, you know, it's a bit like when someone rich gives a bunch of money to charity and they say, "Well, yeah." I have, I have a better example. It's more like when uh, the McPherson inquiry happened, and then the, the first conversation we'd ever had nationally about institutional racism is like. Rather than do this, Dwayne Brooks was with Stephen Lawrence when he was killed. Let's just in- incriminate him in like a false sexual assault claim. Yeah, so you're just trying to discredit around it. Or like even the, in the Breonna Taylor case where it's like, oh, no, her boyfriend shot first. Or we tried to get him to say that she was associated with drug dealers because it's like much easier to discredit a narrative. It appears to be righteous and it speaks to, I think, more esoteric feelings where we can't find justification for something. And it's much easier to kind of tear that down rather than, you know, yeah, be a lot more um, introspective. Because I wanted to ask you is that, did you was, was one of the catalysts for you writing the book and being introspective and thinking about where some of your uh, more aggressive ideas have come from, was this because of the reason you didn't want to, were you trying to preemptively make sure that you acknowledged it before people were like, well, this was James O'Brien from 2011 kind of thing, or was it it's more... This will sound a little bit up myself, but the thing about my job that I love, so some people on the radio are just treading water until they they would much rather be on television. Some people on the radio are, are kind of going through the motions. But I, I love what I do in a way that is such a, an incredible blessing and a privilege. And, and the more I did it, the, um, the, the, the more I found myself feeling, see, if I say I felt really sorry for people who call me in, in righteous fury about immigration or people who call me because they think political correctness has ruined their life or they think that if you know if you teach that sexuality is quite fluid in school then their kids will turn gay i i actually feel nothing but sympathy for them the sympathy runs out a bit when it gets really vile and personal towards me and mine but generally speaking i i, I find myself working on the principle of 
of of thinking your life would be so much better if you didn't feel like this, if you didn't wake up every morning feeling angry and look at what the newspapers are doing. You all world's two minutes hate. You turn on your radio, you've been turned against whatever it is this week, rice packaging or or, or, or the absence of audience sing-alongs at an event with no audience. I mean, there's so much effort put into enraging these. But I just wanted to try try and diffuse some of that rage. And so it, I realized genuinely after writing the first book that, that I, I was going to have to put some skin in the game, actually, to provide tactics, methods, ways, advice, suggestions as to how you can step, you can climb down from a position that your heart and your stomach still insist is defensible, but your head knows that, that, that it isn't. So no, I don't, I don't think I was insulating myself against a sort of retrospective reassessment. I think it's a companion to the first book in the sense that, all right, I may have given the impression that I think I'm right about everything. Here's a bunch of stuff I'm wrong about. And some of it, I'm really wrong about it. And some of it is dangerous. And some of it has damaged me and and the people I love. Some of the things, some of the armor I've put on in the course of my life, which I, I, I started therapy about three years ago because uh, well, partly because I, I just, we had something terrible happen in the family medically. And I was, utterly ill-equipped to, to do what I wanted to do, which was to help. And, and just at the beginning of this year, when I was really benefiting from the fruits of therapy, and it turned out I'd been carrying a lot of anger and pain from my schooling, my boarding schooling, where I was beaten regularly at one and I was emotionally abused at the next one. And I'd spent 20 years, 30 years nearly, persuading myself that these were actually strengths, so I'd, I'd spent the best part of three decades saying, A, it didn't do me any harm. You're a 10-year-old boy with your hands out like that and a six-foot-three headmaster is smacking you as hard as he can with a, with a specially designed implement. And you have to persuade yourself that it didn't do you any harm because if you admit that it did you harm, if you admit at the time that it's doing you harm, I think you fall apart. I think you struggle to hold it together. And, and, and you turn it into, well, it's characterful. Now, I don't know how funny this sounds to you, but this was me. When I first started broadcasting, I used to do a show on Channel 5 and we'd have a kind of fake argument every morning, the, the predecessor to what Jeremy Vine does now. And I would sit there arguing sincerely that, that beating children is, is, is a good idea. And then I'd do that thing where, I, well, and I should know, it's the only language that naughty children understand, and I should know because I was a very naughty child. I used to boast about the fact that I broke records at my prep school for the amount of beatings that you could have in one term. And, and my whole self-image was built upon the idea that it didn't do me any harm. And, and so that's a really profound example. Of course, hitting children is wrong. Let me try and work out how I ended up thinking that hitting children is right. And it's, oh, fuck. It's because I got hit a lot as a kid. And I it's such an interesting point. I think, I think, first of all, I love the idea of what sounds like almost like an ideological martyrdom, where it's like, this is where I fucked up. This is where I was subject to trauma. And these yeah. are the elements that yeah. have formed my perspective. And uh, it's a really good example yeah. you said as well, because it, uh, that process of rationalization in a form of like childhood trauma and violence, I mean, so many of my peers uh, from the diaspora, this is a, such a large, enormous part of their complex whereby it's like you defy, I mean, as human beings in a large part of our narrative, especially when you are thriving within such a uh, conspicuous class system in the UK, is a lot of time we define our place and we, or we rationalise our trauma by our supposed, supposed survival of this trauma. And also, yes. we also rationalise our existence yes. along these lines where we're kind of like, 
I was from a terrible neighborhood where crime was rife. And I was, ex- I was exposed to the same systems of over-policing and brutality and early, uh, early images of trauma and violence. But I've survived that, which makes me tough. That's why, because I yeah. survived it, yeah. it makes me strong. So yeah. we tend to define ourselves that way. It's like, yeah, I got beaten when I was a kid, but... Jane, you have no idea how relieved I am to hear you say that because what, 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 I knit all this together in the book and I speak, I provide transcripts of some, some lads whose backgrounds would be much more similar to yours than mine and I try to make parallels while being acutely conscious of the fact that at first glance it would sound ridiculous to say getting beaten at a very expensive school has some sort of psychological similarity to being pressured into joining a gang at, at the same age in a very different socioeconomic background. But, I, you know, I spoke to George the Poet about it. He, he appears in the book and some of the stuff he described to me, it obviously explains why some boys in particular, end up in the messes that they end up with. And a lot of it is about denying that it did you any harm. There's a guy called Andre. Andre talked about, he could remember a specific moment when he came out of his flat at the age of 15 or 16. And that was the point at which he had to start dealing. Yeah. That, that, that was either he started dealing. Such an point. Uh, I remember going to youth club because my background, compared to my peers, it was very privileged as well. I went to a grammar school, but then, like, I went to youth club, and I remember being, like, 15, 16, and you see everyone else has to make that decision now, whereby they are now within a new paradigm where they are not really considered adolescents necessarily, not within, you know, and that's, there's a number of there's a number of systems that kind of influence that. But, yeah, it's a dramatic lifestyle change now where, irrespective of how you feel, you need to learn because there is the sensationalism that people use when describing, I guess, what they refer to as, like, gang life, it's not the narrative there. It's, it's we are from a low-income neighbourhood with uh, infinitesimal economic opportunities, and you know, as we discussed, one part of the complex that's formed is uh, rationalisation, but there's also normalisation. And in the same way, that if you're at home and your parents take the time, maybe it's on a weekend or in the evening, to read a book before bed, this is a teach children. You can't teach children; they learn from what they see. So if your uncle or your dad is cutting up coke in order for you to be able to eat because this you've just followed the logistic chain of this allows our family to eat i don't look at this as you know someone dealing in a controlled substance this is how we learn to survive and you know it's and i think it's a very interesting point because you know when you're able to talk about these uh just the quantums of humanity along uh i guess in a psychological way there's always going to be mutuality so then like you said myself i've had the time to try and observe apathy for this one percent and realize, you know, these people are inculcated with the idea that if the rest of the proletariat or those they perceive to be the 99% are given power, they will destroy it because they are uneducated. These are people that unkept, the useless eaters who require us to control them. Otherwise, they left their own devices, you know, which is why, I knew, is why even now you hear some of the more archaic and even feudal ideas that come from certain members of the Tory party. We are kind of like, this, I think this person has probably never washed their own plate before. Mm. And boast, and boast about it, and boast about it. Yes, and boast about it. And, 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 you know, it's like, you hear people, I hear people talking now about, like, Boris Johnson and, you know, his, uh, you know, lack of competence and just being blustering. To him, it doesn't even occur to him that, you know, these people are even in a kind of position where they could even scrutinise his behaviour. Um, yeah, to the extent where, as you said, the decision right. was made that he'd be a politician probably before he even yeah. decided on, on an allegiance because... Those are the echelons that he's kind of operating within society. It's like it's like yeah. I think he wanted to be world king. 
when he was about four. He announced to his mum <laughs> that he wanted to be world king. But it's interesting, isn't it, to think about how the, the you, were, you were talking about the trauma, uh, James, yes. and how kind of that defines a lot of how you grow up, right? And and, yes. and I think it's 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 a really universal thing, even though I think one of the biggest problems is that. Um, and I, I will reference, uh, I'm not going to name the child that, that I know who said this, but it's a child I know who, who when they <laughs> see something that is different to them, they mm. say it's weird. And yeah. the idea that the difference is, is a bad thing is born in, in, in some people really young. And I think, I was you know thinking about this question that underpins this episode and, and has a massive link to your book, which is why is it so hard to change your mind? Yeah. And I think it's the phrase, sticking to your guns is the thing that that becomes so impossible and 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 now i think it's become so complicated because in your personal life you may stick to your guns i can tell you that in my personal life i do not stick to my guns i will happily apologize and back down to my wife really? whenever is necessary because <laughs> yes. um i am i am wrong and i'm quite happy to say i'm wrong uh, professionally i will sometimes have to back down and i will admit i'm wrong as well but then there's also the public one which is what twitter has created right and it, and it, and it's kind of to me i think that that sense that we all want to stick to our guns now that we have this public profile is just bizarre but it's the type of guns we have now, Howard, just, just continuing from your point, because James, what I think I've noticed when we talk about changing people's mind is uh, normally in terms of the pro- just the, the human process of discourse when you are trying to change someone's mind or influence their thinking and present argument, normally it was the exchange of facts as we saw them, or we'd both have an argument and present facts to support the argument, and then maybe an objective party would decide which argument has more strength, you know, which I'm, to anyone who's aware of, like, you know, whether it's Ivy League or um, Oxbridge, they regularly encourage a culture of debate amongst their students for this uh, purpose. I think what's happened is for, uh, you know, most of us, whether you're of the working class, or let's just say the, so- the digital uh, or social media class, is that we've given rise to the uh, validity of the opinion. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, sticking to your guns now doesn't actually have to involve two parties who, I guess, we are two human beings with, uh, you know, varied, but we'll have similar uh, experiences because we have the same methods to interpret stimulus or stimuli. Whereas when people exist on social media, for example, because they, never, they don't have to exist within themselves, more of an avatar or a projection of themselves or their consciousness, they are not beholden to the same natural laws like would be scientific fact or historic fact to make their argument. I think that's been a real big problem where now you have people who can be like, when you do say, well, I'm sorry, here are the facts, and I'm not going to back down on them because I am 
providing you with credible information or fact to support this basis, like you do discussion about Brexit. And what you find is people go, well, I'm entitled to my opinion. And I think that is the statement that has basically led to, you know, the destruction of human discourse as we know it. I think Isaac Asimov predicted it, the science fiction writer, when he he saw a future in which, as he described it, my fact is accorded the same worth as your false opinion. And and I, I presume he was looking at what technology was going to do. And largely because of what you describe, I think it's harder to be publicly wrong now than ever before. I think because we set so much weight by the public um, mudslinging matches and the Twitter spats and, and these... Um, and, and the other thing is, of course, that there's an attempt, whatever side of whatever argument you might be on, if I can prove that you were wrong about that, which goes back to your earlier question about sort of reverse reassessments, if I can prove that you were wrong about that, then then I somehow undermine everything you're saying about this. And you, you get a lot of that, a lot of a sort of what you call a sort of reputation undermining, which has nothing to do with facts and reality and everything to do with perception. So look, most obviously, you know, people who started the year thinking that you could catch coronavirus from 5G phone masks and they're ending it thinking that, that you know, there, there are traffic children under in tunnels under the streets of London whose blood is being harvested to, to give Tom Hanks an elixir of eternal youth. And, and you, you and I, I sense all three of us share a mixture of dismay and bafflement looking at that. And you can prove to these people that it's wrong. But not only can they find bogus sources that look on the surface like creditable sources, but they can also go online and get a couple of thousand likes and, and they look at it and the dopamine hit that comes with that means that they are almost chemically stepping back from objectivity. It's all, well, how could I possibly be wrong if 2,000 people or 20,000 people, or I've got a million followers, how can I be wrong? Everybody, look how many people agree with me. And it's as if, you know, I would say it's reached an apotheosis of sorts with Trump on, on day one when it rained at his inauguration. Or oh, even worse, even worse. I know, I'll tell you exactly when. I'll tell you exactly when. It is when Kellyanne Conway said alternate facts. Oh, alternative facts, man. Alternative facts. Because once that was allowed to be entered into yeah. vernacular, particularly in mainstream media, yeah. now yeah. you have now given license for lies. Yeah, and, and and not I mean it's a euphemism for lies, but but it, it was there and Trump ended up as the favorite line in Orwell in nineteen eighty four about the party told you not to trust your, your eyes and ears. It was their final most terrible command. And if you Google that now, the first thing that comes up is Trump saying, Don't believe what you see in here, believe me. And you know, I think we reached too quickly for the Orwell comparisons, but you know, even a stock clock is right twice a day and he he nailed what, what, what you've just described back in the nineteen forties. And 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 to me, the thing about Trump that 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 kind of kind of and I'd love to talk about this with you guys is that kind of for me, obviously you would be surprised to know if I was an American citizen, I, I'm not sure I would vote for him. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and 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 <laughs> well, yeah, well, yet the thing about Trump that is fascinating, uh, and someone said this to me recently, uh, is that all politicians will be liars because that's the nature of politics. Trump doesn't hide it. Or if he does, he's hiding it really, really badly. He's not really even trying to hide it most of the time. And that kind of brings me on to one thing I really want to talk to you about, which is this, this mind-changing problem we're facing right now, which is if you are on the right wing... Mm. I could write, you could give me a poster right now and I could tell you what that slogan is for the right wing. But the left wing, and I've said this before on this podcast, Dane, it, 
I just don't know what the identity of modern left-wing culture is. Well, I think if you're if if you notice now, I just think we've just seen a massive decline in the integrity of the bipartisan political system anyway. So whether it's left or right, I just don't think there's any way of defining either side. I think uh, the right has been able to effectively work in symbiosis with uh, populism because a lot of, uh, especially more extreme right rhetoric is uh, very similar anyway because it has its roots in, uh, you know, spreading disinformation, fear-mongering and, uh, you know, creating false narratives about, you know, minority groups who tend to, you know, sit on the left just by the nature of, you know, the socialist aspect or the humanist aspect of the left of left wing ideology. But yeah, mm. I, I feel like the thing with Donald Trump isn't so much that like he lies and gets forgiven for it. I think it's just really an issue of watching somebody who is from, you know, the same echelons of society as his political equivalents, because the last 20 years of American politics has remained within the within four bloodlines, mm. you know. So I just think it's 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 yeah. watching somebody who has been wrapped in the veil and been swaddled in his white privilege or capitalist or industrialist privilege, who has never been subject to the narrative from, I guess, what he perceives as the peasantry. So Donald Trump, people have always felt these things about Donald Mm. Trump, and he is just having the same uh, digital existential crisis as a lot of people that have enjoyed privilege because now they're seeing what true democratization of narrative looks like. Yeah, Uh, yeah. And add to that the... The weirdest thing for me, and, and it's something I write about, is the people who, who know they're being lied to but welcome it because it upsets the other side. And that's where the right-left dichotomy fails now. Is that they've tried to turn liberal into a dirty word and, and woke is the new politically correct. And it's, well, I mean, even do-gooders, they, they call it do-gooding. I mean, you're living in a, living in a world where the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is the most profitable franchise in history, and yet... The idea of you wanting to just do good for the sake of it, you're a virtue signaller. I know, I know. Well, that's virtue signaling. Having these, having these positive desires is they, they've denigrated everything that's not supremely selfish or, or um, even borderline sociopathic. Absolutely everything has been denigrated. And it's usually, I sometimes worry that we overthink the politics of it because Donald Trump, Donald Trump would call himself a flipping Martian Absolutely. if he thought there was a few quid yeah. in it. He'd call himself a Republican. He'll call himself a Democrat. And throughout history, fascist movements, and I don't think anyone would really argue that elements of Donald Trump's latter uh, years of presidency have contained elements of fascism. Um, they're usually criminal enterprises. So if I can persuade you that there is a threat over there, and and there isn't, but you believe that there is, and then the next thing I do is persuade you to pay me with with votes or with actual money or with political power. You pay me to protect absolutely a protection racket. So what was the Muslim ban? The so-called Muslim ban was a protection. I mean, the the funding of the police as a protection racket, James, and and you know even that as a term elicits so much fury on both sides. And yet the craziest thing is the foremost authority on it himself refused to pay his tax and salarize the same police officers he's endorsing. And we've moved so far from this conversation whereby it's like, if I was a police officer and it's like, we like Donald Trump, but he won't pay your salaries. <laughs> the reason you're overworked is- yeah, it's, it's incredible that, isn't it? It's incredible because it's all feelings and there's no facts. There. Also, the, the other point, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a fully across the the defunding the police element of, of recent movements. But I remember 
when it was called austerity, right-wing people were all in favour of it, you know, getting rid of 20,000 police officers. They, they gave it the wrong name. You call it defunding the police and everyone clutches their pearls and has a fit of the vapours. You call it austerity and they all stick their hands in the yeah. air and vote it's for it. It's just nuts. And nuts. it's like I even noticed uh, even that you have to almost caveat your speech when you're like, I don't, I'm not under the supposition that people are stupid if they don't necessarily agree with what I'm saying. I, the difference between you and I, James, is that I'm a comedian. So I always have that foundation of being facetious when I say this. I disagree. You are fucking stupid, people. You're fucking stupid. Because now we're at the point now where you're acting against your own self-interest because if you continue to cause ecological devastation, you're not going to be able to take a yacht anywhere. You're not going to... And I think it's... And what's, I think what's happened, continue what you're saying, is that uh, digital media has basically, while it's, show, it's allowed and chronicled human progress and interaction and you know technological advance has moved again it continues to move apace but we've regressed to the integrity of an amoeba single cells organisms who are massively introspective massively oversensitive psychologically but if we feel like we're being attacked this need to consume everything around us but at the same time oppose any similar organism that resembles us and um yeah, and just have all of our and I guess and just try to self-contain all of our functions within ourselves and be completely insulated and yeah, like I said, it's just I'm entitled to my opinion. It's it's. Uh... I envy you a bit. I envy you the the freedom and the, and the, and the comic device and the and the power, the, the the polemical power of of that. But but as as I say, I come I come from a and and of course the main reason I envy you is that I bend over backwards not to call people stupid, not to malign them as being too thick to understand. You know, not you're not if you voted Brexit, you're not a racist. If you are a racist, you almost certainly voted Brexit. But it doesn't work. The other way, it's not it's not two way traffic. But you know, right up to the current um, foreign secretary, people have described me personally in precisely the terms that you've just referred to. James O'Brien thinks you're thick. James O'Brien thinks you're racist. The people who think you're stupid are the people persuading you to vote against your own interests. And one of the most powerful weapons in their arsenal is whispering in your ear and saying, "People over there who are, who are telling you not to vote against your own interests, they think you're thick." They think you're thick, they do. And they think you're a racist. Yeah, but I think it's the same as you say, though, James. I, I actually think as well, like you said, is that I think people have now built up a wall because, I, and I say this a lot of times that I always use this analogy, is that the collective consciousness of human beings today is a teenager online. So, so far as how our minds thrive and perceive our own existence uh, or, or our own virtual reality, it's an adolescent consciousness, which means a lot of our reactions are quite teenaged. Yeah, well... Mate, the, the, the quote that I, in many ways, the book was born from is, is a quote from Cyril Connolly, who was at Eton with George Orwell in the 30s or 20s. And he went on to become a really famous critic. And he came up with something called the theory of permanent adolescence. And, 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 and it describes exactly what you've just described. But one of the things that I explore is I used to think that was confined to public school because Connolly's line begins that the boys from the great public schools, their triumphs are so great there. It's almost as if their emotional stimuli are so powerful. They never move on from that stage. And the reason I was so relieved to hear you earlier move from my experiences as a child to yours and to, 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 to children that have gone off the deep end and gone off the rails was because I realized while writing it, that Connolly was talking about all adolescents, that the more extreme your experiences, if you're watching your uncle cut up coke or if you're being threatened with a knife on your way to school, these are huge adrenaline-based reactions and, and they stunt your growth and you end up 
not just putting on the armor and, and putting on a survival personality, but you end up moving heaven and earth to convince yourself of two things. Number one, this is who I am. Not this is who I have to become to survive. This is who I am, and this is where I want to be. And they're probably the two biggest lies that we tell each other. We tell ourselves. Denied our existence because it's such a part of our humanity in our ongoing dynamic way to try and define it. A large part of defining our humanity comes from struggle. And you can see that played out whereby when people from one side express the details of their triumph over struggle. So, for example, Black Lives Matter, despite what you tell us. Then you get a defensive rebuttal from people who would normally try to define their own. But if now they are the sources of someone else's struggle, they realise that now they put this, there's a leverage of power change where if this person triumphs over the struggle, then their humanity is superior to my own, which is why people will respond, well, all lives matter and they must do it. Well, no, all lives matter because for black people to assert that, it means that that's almost an, it, we are making a, an external declaration of our humanity and the integrity of our humanity because that's what we do within class systems is like you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth whereas i i work for everything i have and normally within the par- in that paradigm that person who worked hard is seen as being more benevolent so if black people are asserting well we've overcome this and we're going to continue to do so because our lives matter those who live a relatively unremarkable life and almost eking out a living where they tread water financially as well as socially they say well they're not bad they, they said they're talking like they're better than us because most of our lives are, are quite unremarkable. Oh, through, and I'm saying that through the lens of capitalism and, you know, and Western civilization, most people have unremarkable lives, which is why we always refer to the 1% today. And a large part of rationalizing that inferiority complex is when we hear people near being like, yeah, but you're better than those guys because they come from a different country. And so... But it's that thing, Dane. It's that thing that I think we, we talk about now and again on this show, which is know your enemy. Yeah. Know your enemy. Like, there are people right now, I feel, in our world, and listen, I'm going to say it, like, there's people out there who I love, respect, admire, who I feel somehow our minds are shifting, like, as in this changing mind problem that we have, where they mm. just want everyone to, everyone to be an enemy. Whereas what can happen with wonderful dialogue a um, bit of love, <laughs> some communication. You can go, listen. So it's interesting, me and Dane, James, me and Dane have done this for about 81 hours, this podcast. Not this episode, obviously. But, you know. uh, but we've done it. And 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 Dane, you know, like, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't massively offended you at any point in these 81 hours. Um, maybe my choice of potatoes in the uh, Ishan Akbar episode, but, like, that's a long time that's ago. Okay. But the... <laughs> Yeah, let's not go there again. But the but the, the the point I'm using this for is that if if Dane, if I had offended Dane, he, or or in any way, you know, my opinion was totally different to him, he'd just go around and just go, just listen, um, that thing you said, I just want you to know from my side of things, this is how I feel about it. I, I don't know if that changes your mind. It's just like, I don't know, like ignorance is not a, 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 like a thing that you just condemn people for. You can go... Hey, you're ignorant. Listen, I can give you some more information. But if he if he'd been actively trying to hurt you, or you'd been a- and he suspected you were actively trying to hurt him, it would feel different, wouldn't it? So it's Definitely. it's the difference between good that's faith I- and bad faith, I guess. Well, that's what I mean about know your enemy. You have to contextualize all of this adversity through the eyes of capitalism. There's always a vested commercial interest in stoking these fires of division a lot of the time as well. And people that have learned to thrive in it when they believe that money makes the world go around, 
then people feel, well, if we are to give over this power to another or a third party or allow for this egalitarian landscape of humanity, then I'm going to lose the relatively little privilege I have over yeah. the rest of the world. It's funny. It's funny you say that. Here's the closest I ever get to a conspiracy theory. When I try and work out what happened in the course of our lifetimes, I'm 48 years old, and I thought this shit was done with. I thought, you know, the Holocaust, for example, would mark the end of picking on a religion and pretending that every single member of that religion was somehow uh, culpable or, 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 or dangerous or, or, or in deserving of death even. And then you, you sort of see the progress that was made under the banner of political correctness. While there was still a long way to go, I never felt that we'd go into reverse like we have done. And the closest I come to a conspiracy theory is, is the Occupy Wall Street movement, which we didn't really get in full full fat in this country. But in America, I, I, I wonder how close you could date this re-weaponization of prejudice, religious, racial, um, with that fear for, I mean, you say the 1%. We're really talking about the 0.0001%. And they suddenly thought, shit, if everybody actually realizes uh, the imbalance and the inequality, they're going to combine. And the people who currently call themselves right-wing and people who currently call themselves left-wing are going to combine in, in, in the common interest. And now they have the tools to do it as well because now they have digital media whereby they can share this information and they can exchange information. And, you know, you're absolutely right, Jake. Well, think about how it plays out because I can guarantee you, without the stillness that has to be observed because of the pandemic, Black Lives Matter becoming the largest humanitarian protest that the planet has ever seen would not have happened. The eight, the extra eight minutes and 43 seconds that were needed to watch George Floyd be murdered around the world, that wouldn't have happened. Wow. Because it was too long. Because it just, because our yeah, attention, just, we wouldn't have too been long. there. The normal, the normal rigors of going to work and maintaining your resolve. Just wouldn't have landed, wouldn't have landed in the same it way. It would not have landed in the same way. This stillness, and I think that's going to be part of it. It's very interesting what you say. When you say about 1948, when uh, George Orwell drafted mm. 1984, and say in the post-war, that we see the end of these systems. Mm. Um, yeah, I agree because I mean that's because. But what happened was it was just the more archaic systems of monarchism and feudalism and uh, you know religion as a way to tax uh, the mm. the populace were no longer going to work because people had seen devastation that they'd never seen before in their life in the Great War. So then you saw the emergence of like consumption and, and capitalism supplanting you know normal war bonds and taxation. And I think we just got to a point where, as you said, I think that Occupy Wall Street from two thousand and eight. Onwards, yeah. I think that was the best place where, as you said, people were at a point now where we're like, communism has failed in the Soviet Union, in, theoretically, mm. although it's never really been a pure left-wing ideology because that's always been dynastic and wealth has sure. still been held by an upper echelon. But then now we got to the point in 2008 where, well, capitalism doesn't work either. Yeah. Because we've seen the decline of these other ideologies that have been used to distract human, human beings, whether it's been like with religion and spirituality, identity politics is one of the only ones we have left whereby we can attach ourselves to an ideal. And like I said, as a normal part of human beings and our rationalization and normalization process is this allows me to not have to take responsibility for my own life, not to make look introspectively at what I might perceive to be my own shortcomings, you know, as a, as a person, as opposed to a member of a particular race or ethnic group or religion, rather than me doing that, um, I've, I can attach myself to these ideas. I think that's one of the reasons why people are so diverse to change their mind, because like you said, once they start letting it in, the light in, the slither of light in, then the whole window has to be open. And then you have to see that, like, you know, the social systems in which your society is predicated on are built on lies. You know, if you're someone who lives in Australia, I'm sorry, but unfortunately, a lot of indigenous people were killed and marginalized and brutalized in order for you to realize your standard of living. There's yes. no way around it. There's no way, no way amount of liberal performative apologies 
can escape from that is that these people are continuing to be disenfranchised and we can't avoid that conversation. Same way in America, it's like we can't look away from this. At the end of the day, you have a system of iniquity and, you know, you now have a, you've now have a point at the tip of an iceberg. But, you know, even this person himself, as Dave Chappelle correctly said, Donald Trump will do more for me than his normal white vote, rest of his white voters in middle America. So I think the reason why it's so hard for people to change their minds is because I think people are scared to take a walk inside of their own heads. Well, uh, that's that's where my book comes in. Hopefully, it's helped. It's helped me. Just in conclusion, the, the, to go back to the beginning, this when I was trying to work out why I couldn't be as much help to my uh, loved ones that I wanted to be when 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 we had this medical crisis. I, when I started writing the book, I wasn't quite sure where it was going to go. But Boris Johnson caught the virus, and David Cameron came out and said he'll be fine because I know how he plays tennis. I've watched him play tennis and suddenly everything slotted into place for me because you see everything as a fight, everything as a battle. You never admit that you're hurt because you're too busy punching out. You spend your life with your fists up. And, oh, and hey, I, have you, uh, here's a better example. Have you ever been on a train lately or oh, before the lockdown and you see somebody who look, may look vulnerable and say, would you like a seat? And they go, yeah. no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Because yeah. by that person conceding that they may be vulnerable within the rat race, it's almost like they, they, it's like they make the rest of the carriage acknowledge I'm not yes. strong enough for the for the for the rigors of capitalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, it's yeah. Like, and that's where we are. Yeah, that's where we are. That's where we are. Because because everyone, everyone's like, well, there's too many of us for a start. So if I if I don't, like, I, I can't I can't adapt. They'll get rid of me. You know. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, this episode has been um, without the normal structure of our, our format, but I think the uh, listeners will have loved it as much as I have, and I'm sure you have, right, Dane? Absolutely. I, I can't say enough. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you. Please do keep out the good fight, James. You're doing the right thing. They are stupid. I can say it. They're stupid. <laughs> You're stupid, everyone. He's right. Well, that was a real pleasure. I'd be happy to do one in the normal format as well when I haven't got a book to flog. Absolutely. Right, It'd be a real pleasure. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Have a good day, man. All the best. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnaptiste. Our guest was James O'Brien. You can follow James on Twitter at MrJamesOB. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at We Are Audio Culture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly, and the Acast team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys, and remember. Question everything. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.